No pain, no gain. The early bird gets the worm. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And nice guys finish last. Within society, we have idioms that describe how things often work in the world because of the repeated patterns in our culture. People create paradigms with pithy phrases so that we can remember them and supposedly do well in society. Now, I'm not commending any of those phrases per se. I'm just saying they exist and many people live by them. Case in point, often there is pain involved to gain strength and status. The early initiator and the first one to act gets the prize. The marketplace is incredibly competitive, so you're going to have to fight like a dog if you want to keep your place or climb the corporate ladder. And according to worldly thinking, if you expect to win the girl or achieve goals at work, niceness won't win others over. It'll cause you to be overlooked relationally or relegate you to grunt work in the office. According to our society, that's just how things work around here. But what about God and his kingdom, his society, his world? There is a way things work in God's economy. And our passage today is when Jesus explained to the disciples how the kingdom works. I don't have to tell you that the way things supposedly work around here isn't how they work in God's kingdom, but I do want to ask, how does it work? How does it work in God's kingdom? How do we succeed in God's economy and do well before him? How would you describe to someone how it works with God and his kingdom? In the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus not only explain how it works, but we're going to see that his teaching disrupts the social norms and expectations of those who think they know how it works in God's kingdom. They think they know what it's like to be first in the kingdom of God. And it's going to shock both those who know their Bibles well and Jesus' closest followers. Which makes me think that you and I should not assume we know how it works with God. Rather, we should be diligent to understand Christ's teaching on God's kingdom so that we might know how it operates and do well according to kingdom standards. Now, allow me to map out what we're going to do this morning. We're looking at the parable of the laborers in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. But this parable and illustration of the kingdom has a context. It comes on the heels of Jesus' interaction with the rich young man, the disciples being shocked at what just happened, and his debrief session with them. So we have to look at that interaction in order to understand why Jesus gave the parable. And then once we learn about the kingdom through the story of the parable of the laborers, we'll spend a good chunk of time on the application of this parable. So with that, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, verse 16. And I'm going to walk through these scriptures. I'll point us to a few passages as, or verses as we go through, just in order to understand the context. In Matthew 19, 16, we have a man who asks Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus could have responded and said, you can't earn eternal life, duh. Or he could have said, you're asking the wrong question, but he doesn't. 
Jesus simply interacts with the man on his terms. And the essence of Jesus' answer there is, keep the commandments. Please don't hear Jesus teaching a works-based salvation. He's saying that eternal life is given to those who put their faith in God and express their faith in obedience to God's word. He's simply saying that faith has a face, and it's faithfulness. Faithfulness to God's word. We can tell that the man is unsettled and disconcerting because he asks which ones. He's not getting the answer he wants. And so Jesus mentions five of the Ten Commandments, all of which express how we, all involve how we express our faith to our neighbors. Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie or steal, and honor your parents. I especially like that one. And then Jesus adds the second half of the greatest commandment. He tells the young man, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the man's response has a mixture of ignorant arrogance and a lack of assurance of eternal life. He says, all these I've kept what do I still lack? And like the great physician that Jesus is, our Lord points out the problem. Look with me at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, I want you guys to think whole or complete. Commentator D.A. Carson says, undivided loyalty. If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus knows that this young man isn't ultimately treasuring God, but he's treasuring his possessions. Now, this isn't some arbitrary command that Jesus is issuing, like he just pulled something out. No, he's simply calling the young man to express his faith by obeying the greatest commandment, to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, which turns out meaning he hasn't actually kept all the commandments. So Jesus loves the man by pointing out his love for money. But we can see the call to love God by loving his neighbor as himself and to follow Christ was way too much for him. The price was too high because rather than following Christ, he went away sorrowful. Verse 21 says he had, or 22 says he had great possessions. That's the reason why. So what we have in these early verses are a case study in someone who is first in Israelite society. He's rich, supposedly keeping God's law. He's a man, but he's becoming last in the kingdom of God. There's no eternal life for him, who in Jesus' day, Everyone would have thought, that guy's getting in. A million pastors today would love to have this guy in their pews. Just think, young, wealthy, and a man outwardly serious about God's law. But Jesus lets him walk away. Walk away with the understanding that there's no eternal life for him in his current state. And this blows away the disciples. In verse 23, Jesus begins to debrief them on what just happened. They're shocked. What? You didn't let him in? 
No, Jesus says only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, it's easier for a camel, the largest animal in the Middle East, to pass through the eye of a sewing needle, one of the smallest holes commonly known in his day, than for a lover of money to love God with all that he has and love his neighbor as himself. Jesus' bet is on the camel. Verse 25 says that the disciples are greatly astonished. They're shocked because they didn't expect Jesus to say, that's how things work in the kingdom. In their day, they would have thought wealthy Israelites would be blessed by God. Just think of the book of Proverbs. They would have thought that they're the ones receiving eternal life. But they've misunderstood God. And they've misunderstood how the kingdom works. And recognizing this, they ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He's saying that salvation is a miracle. For God alone can work in the heart of someone who's a lover of money and cause them to treasure Christ more than all their possessions. But now Jesus explains what's in store for those who have left everything, particularly the disciples who are last in society because they've left everything to follow Christ. Will they be considered last like this lost young rich man or will they be considered something else in the kingdom? Jesus says these things in verses 28 and 29. He says, in particular, the apostles, the 12 apostles will sit along Side Jesus, and they'll reign on 12 thrones in the new creation, which shows they will receive far more than they've ever given up for Jesus. And then he also says in general, for anyone who leaves everything behind for Christ, whether that's great possessions or family, they will receive a hundredfold for all their sacrifice. A hundredfold. And will above all be exalted to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying that those who become last for his namesake will be first in the kingdom of God. But not everyone is willing to do that. Not everyone's willing to let go of their life and their possessions, which is why in verse 30, Jesus comes back to where he started in verse 23. Many who are first like this rich young man, first in society, worthy in their own eyes, will be last. I want you to think last is lost. Last is lost. And they'll be unable to enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who leave all and come and follow Christ, they will be first, exalted in the life to come. So that's the context of our parable. That's how we get the pithy phrase from Christ. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's how it works in the kingdom. And it's a paradigm shift for Jesus' disciples. In the world we live in, it's honestly the first who are first and the last who are last. But they're learning that's not the way in the kingdom. And so to further drive home this idea, Jesus uses a parable to explain the why behind the kingdom paradigm. Why is it that the last shall be first and the first last? Would you look with me at chapter 20, verses 1 through 8? 
He says here in verses 1 through 8, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, Why are you standing idle? They said, We haven't been hired. And he says, you too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So here we have Jesus painting a picture of what the kingdom is like. In his day, the owners of vineyards would often go into the marketplace to find day laborers. They wouldn't hire a full-time staff for things. There's the harvest where you just need a few people or uh, a lot of people for a few days. And so men would show up in the marketplace looking for a job. And God here is being compared to a vineyard owner just like he is in Isaiah chapter 5. God being the vineyard owner, Israel being the vineyard. The master hires some laborers after agreeing on a wage of a denarius a day, which is very critical for the end of our story. And they go into his vineyard at the beginning of the workday, which starts roughly around 6 a.m. Now it seems the master could use some more workers, so he returns to the marketplace at the third hour, 9 a.m., and he finds more men who have not been hired. Now, when we see that they've been standing there idle, it's easy for us to assume that they've been lazy, but that's not the case. Rather than working, these men are still standing in the marketplace waiting to be hired. It might be helpful for us to envision a massive marketplace where there's vendors and produce being sold, and there's people everywhere. And so he didn't see them the first hour. So he tells these men to go out and join the laborers of the first hour, but he doesn't agree on a denarius a day. He says, whatever is right, I will give to you. The master does this again at the sixth hour, which is noon, and again at the ninth hour. Now, apparently, the vineyard owner couldn't get enough help on his farm. Perhaps it's harvest, and he really needs everything in. So the master goes out at the eleventh hour, just an hour before quitting time, and he finds another group of men who've been standing in the marketplace all day. And he goes up to them and he says, why are you standing here idle? And they respond, because no one has hired us. Now it's helpful to understand that master's question and their idle, the idle men's response. These men aren't people who just happen to show up. Again, they're not lazy. The response of because no one has hired us seeks to communicate that these guys have been waiting to be hired, but have been passed over by other employers. It's like the workplace version of gym class growing up, where the coach picks two people to be team captains, and he says, all right, pick this person, you know, one after another, pick your team for dodgeball. And inevitably, there's always the last few students that no team captain wants. 
And they're like, uh, I'll take this guy, you take that guy, I guess. These people are unwanted, undesirable to employers. The point Jesus is making is they've been overlooked all day long until now. Now the master hires these men too, and they hurry to work for about an hour. And in verse 8, the master calls it a day. He has his few full-time employees, if you would, go and call those laborers so that they can receive their wages. Back in Israel's day, God had commanded in Leviticus 19.13 that you give them their wage at the end of the day. Most families had little to no margin, and so they needed their wage at the end of every day for food. Now notice in verse 8 that the owner of the vineyard specifically wants the, those hired first in the day to be paid last, and those hired last to be first in line to receive their wage. So that's the story up to this point. It makes sense. It's nothing to write home about. There's no twists, no shocks. But remember, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God is greatly astonishing, even to his closest followers. So his illustration needs to do no less. Would you read with me verses 9 through 16? And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Do you see the turn, the shock, the surprising ending? If you were listening to the story for the very first time, you would not expect the owner to treat the first and last workers like he does. The generosity of the master is staggering. Just think, if your boss came up to you, after about an hour of work, and said, here's your check for the day, go home. You would be thinking a couple of things. First, how do I make that happen again? I'll get this guy coffee if I have to. But you would mostly be thinking, what incredible generosity that he just gave me something I do not earn. The master's generosity is staggering. You can see that it's staggering in a couple of ways, actually. Staggering in the overwhelming sense that these workers who need this money for their life but only could work one day or one hour of the day. But it's also staggering in the offensive way to those who'd worked the whole day, borne the burden of the day. They are described as grumbling at the master in verse 11. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't spend much time on those last hour workers. He moves rather quickly to those who were hired first. He wants to highlight something about these. 
This helps us to see that the focus of the parable is on the first hired and their reactions to the way of the master. Verse 10 teaches us that after seeing the generosity of the master to the last hired laborers, the first hired laborers think they are in for a really nice paycheck. Paycheck, Honey, we're having steaks for dinner. I mean, they think something's coming, but it's not. The master pays them a denarius, a denarius that they had agreed upon, the same amount that all the others received. And they are frustrated. They're complaining in their hearts, which Jesus calls grumbling. Now, that's a word we need to remember because it's all throughout Scripture, especially in reference to the Jews and their grumbling in their response to the ways of God. Israel isn't known as a people of gratitude. They're known as a people of grumbling, which I'll come back to in a minute. For now, look at verse 12, at the laborers' words that give voice to their grumbling. I want you to hear their heart here. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you hear the ugliness of their hearts? I want you to also see that the issue is less about the fact that they only got a denarius and more about the fact that these undesirable workers were made equal to them. They were wanted at the beginning of the day. They've worked all day. And they're being made equal to those who've been passed over all day. They're thinking, that's unfair. We're much better than them, right? But as we're learning, the kingdom of God operates differently. God acts differently than us. The master responds in verse 13 to say, There's nothing unfair about his generosity. After all, didn't the master pay them what they had agreed upon? Yes. Cannot the owner do what he wants with what belongs to him? Yes. And so we see that the staggering generosity of God is why the first shall be last and the last first. The kingdom is like this because of who God is. God only acts towards his people with sheer grace and generosity. There is no earning his favor, as the rich man tried, who tried to say, all these I've kept. I sure hope he'll say, come on in then. No. There's no merit system whereby your hard work will make you more deserving than others. In reality, we're all undeserving rebels to God's will. So we ought to be overwhelmed with this generosity, not offended. Now that grace is highlighted even further in the fact that this vineyard owner allows all into the vineyard. Even those that no one looks upon as desirable. But people who are first and favorable in their orientation toward themselves, they will not be able to stand this sheer grace. They want a merit system. They want to be more worthy than others. Rather than following Jesus, they will walk away sorrowful like the young rich man, or they will be scornful because they can't bear the thought of others being equal to them. 
And so the last shall be first, and the first last. That's the pithy phrase of the kingdom. That's how it works around God. So what do we do with this passage? Knowing, knowing now that that's the kingdom paradigm, how do we live last now so that we might be made first when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the new world and begins to extend eternal life to people? You'll see in your outline, I've got three applications of Jews and Gentiles, Jesus and sinners, and you and me. I think it's helpful for us to start with Jews and Gentiles. At the macro level in redemptive history, that's a big issue. Jews and Gentiles, and how are they included in the kingdom? I want to ask you something. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, who in his day would generally be considered first place people? And who would be considered last place people? Would it not be the Jews and the leaders of of Israel that would be first place in their self-assessment? And would not it be Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners who were last in Jewish society? The immediate application of this parable is to those who who think they're first, self-righteous, self-righteous Jews. But the irony is they're being rejected by Jesus. They become last in the kingdom and lost forever. And so we learn that the last refer to the few humble Jews that turn to Christ, but primarily Gentile sinners who quickly became the bulk of Jesus' followers in the early church. These are the ones who will be first in the kingdom and will inherit eternal life. That's the big picture application of the parable, that God is extending his generous hand to undeserving sinners, and he's rejecting those who want to hold on to their self-righteousness and possessions. Now, I get that that big picture application may seem odd to you because you're not seeing a lot of Jew-Gentile language in that passage, are you? But if we were to zoom out to the whole of the Matthew's gospel, we would see that there have been pivotal moments all throughout the gospel where Jesus is praising Gentiles, but he's rebuking the Jews. And for the Messiah to the Jews to be acting this way is greatly astonishing. The one that they've been waiting for doesn't want them. It has many either scratching their heads or scoffing at him. You see, the Jews have been God's people from the beginning. But in the 11th hour of redemption, Jesus Jesus has been welcoming tax collectors and sinners. He's receiving Gentile sinners and he's rebuking Jewish Pharisees. Throughout all of his ministry, he is relegating first place people to below him, and he is healing and lifting up those who are downtrodden. He heals the sick, calls lowly fishermen to follow him, and he has a message that all who are weary and heavy laden should come to him, not those who are worthy and weight-bearing. His call is to the lowly. Do you guys remember the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant? That happens in Matthew 8. He comes to Jesus and asks, please heal my servant. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. 
But then the centurion says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy for you to come to me. But I do understand authority. When I say to a soldier, go, he goes. And when I say, come, he comes. So if you're the Lord, the one with authority, you can speak from here and heal my servant. Do you remember how Jesus responded to him? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And get this, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, think last of all Gentiles, and will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Think eternal life. While the sons of the kingdom, first place people here, think Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which you and I know is the eternal torment in hell. We also see in Matthew's gospel that he's constantly eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? Who's he not eating with? Pharisees, Sadducees. He's spending his time with these kinds of people. And the Pharisees are like, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus tells them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And let's not forget the rich young man. Everyone would have thought he deserves to be in the kingdom. He's blessed. He's rich. He loves the law. But he is turned away by Jesus. He stumbles over the fact that Jesus asks him to repent of his sin and show his faith by making himself last in society, by selling all for the sake of the kingdom. So whether it's Jews who scorn Jesus for the way he treats sinners, as the Pharisees did, or a Jew who is sorrowful because he doesn't want to give up his first place living, Either way, the Jews are becoming last in the kingdom of God and are on the path to being thrown into outer darkness. And that's because they honestly had thought they were acceptable in God's sight. Had he not given them the covenants, the promises, they thought that when the Messiah came, they would be acceptable in his sight. They had no expectation that he would scorn them for their self-righteousness. And they can't stand the fact that Jesus loves Gentiles. Do you guys remember the book of Jonah? Do you remember how Jonah responds to the salvation of the Ninevites? He becomes angry at God being merciful to Gentiles. The text says, I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And then he told God, take my life. I can't bear the thought of them being made equal to us. This has been a problem all throughout Jewish history. They think they're better. They can't bear the thought that others would be made equal to them. Now, before we look upon them as foolish, I think, honestly, we all tend to be this way naturally. We would naturally sympathize with the Jews, those who had borne the burden of the day, so to speak. I mean, let me just give you an example. In our workplace, the one who's worked the longest for the company 
Do they not receive the best? Do they not deserve the best treatment? We would probably all say yes. But that's not up to us. We don't own the vineyard. God can do whatever he wants with his people. This parable teaches us that God only acts with sheer grace towards people. Which means first place thinking is at cross purposes with the very heart of God. For God himself in sheer grace became last of all for sinners. I want you guys to look with me at 20, Matthew 20 verses 18 and 19 right after our parable. I want you to see what our God does for sinners. Verse 18. See, Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now that seems like just a passing verse, but on the heels of this parable, Jesus is telling us that he's going to become last of all for sinners. He's telling us that sinners can become first in the kingdom of God because he became last for them. The reason that first place thinking and pride is so deserving of last place punishment is because the king, the master of the vineyard, has become last of all for sinners. Self-righteous people cannot be further from the character of God. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his divinity, but he gave up his place in heaven to become a servant. He didn't hold on to his possessions like the rich young man. No, he willingly let go. He willingly became a servant, being found in human form. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? All so that sinners, undeserving and vile as they are, might be exalted to eternal life because Jesus became last in their place. Do you see the heart of the master? No wonder first place people have no place in his kingdom. This grace and generosity is overwhelming to the sinner, but to those who want to earn God's favor, this is offensive. They don't want to recognize that they need a physician. So we see the application of, to Jews and Gentiles. We see how Jesus became last for sinners. But what about you and me? How does this kingdom orientation work itself out in our personal and daily lives? Well, to start, allow me to define what last place living looks like for the individual. Look at Matthew nineteen twenty nine. there. I think Jesus helps us to see what it looks like. 1929, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here we see that last place living is leaving all to follow Christ. How do we do that? Simple answer is repent, believe, and display our faith as humble servants of Christ. 
Allow me to drill down on those things. Last place living begins by humbly recognizing your poverty of spirit. The lowliness you have before a holy God. You're not worthy before him. I'm not worthy before him. No, we're unholy and unable to stand in his presence. We need to come to God in repentance, not with a resume that says, all these things I have kept. No, we need the humility of the 11th hour workers. No one has hired or wanted me. A lowly humility that cannot even look up to God and with lips that have no other words than God be merciful to me, a sinner. Just think with me for a moment. Is not crying out to God in repentance of your sin and believing that he alone can save you the most lowly last place action you can do? I mean, you're recognizing you're completely unworthy, completely undeserving. Repentance and faith is last place living. So I want to ask you guys this morning, I'm not assuming that all of you are walking with the Lord, that you're faithful followers of Christ. I want to ask, have you made yourself last by repenting of your sin and by believing in Christ? Or do you think in your own way of yourself as a pretty good person? Would you really prefer that God made this a merit-based system? Because you're pretty good in comparison to a lot. I need you to know that to do anything less than repenting and believing is to make sure that on the day of judgment that you will walk away infinitely more sorrowful than that rich young man. That's your eternity. To walk away from the one who made you, who offered you grace, was incredibly generous, and now you have to walk away in sorrow forever. Because you counted your possessions, your position in life, far greater treasure than the grace of Christ. Uh, Friend, deep down, you and I both know that you're undeserving that you are sinful and have rejected and ignored the one who made you. You know that underneath all your posturing, you are a last place sinner, if you're being honest. You know this about yourself. You never measure up. Why wouldn't you respond with the only fitting response of a last place person? If last place living is repentance and faith, and if we're being honest, we're all last place people, why why wouldn't you do that? Why would you continue to posture as being good rather than leaving all for Christ? Please, I plead with you, come to the generous master. All the fitness he requireth is you to feel your need for him. Now, for those of us who've been walking faithfully with the Lord, we've began the last place living life of repentance and faith. I believe this passage calls you and I to keep living last, to to not somehow shift back into some entitlement position. I think that the same humility and posture it required to plead for mercy is the same humility and posture it takes to live the faithful life to Christ, 
To live otherwise would cause us to inevitably, inevitably act entitled or expect God to owe us more or that he should do certain things with other people. I mean, that's the issue of the laborers. I want you guys to think through a scenario with me. What kind of posture would you need to be in and be joyful at your enemy being saved and transformed into a Christian? I mean, just remember, Jews, Gentiles, being treated equal, being given grace. I want you to think of the most vile person you know. What would it take for you to be overjoyed that they are now alive in Christ? And get this, they're in your life group, sharing life with you. And on your worst day, you're giving out the prayer request that life's hard. And they say, I'll pray for you. What's it, what, what would it take for you to be able to not be bothered that they've been made equal to you by God? It's going to take the same humility and self-abasement that it took to turn to Christ in the first place, right? Keep walking in that humility. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we have a generous master who's brought us in at the 11th hour. Nobody wanted us but him. This is how God's economy works. Now, as I close, I recognize that this is an incredibly hard ask from the Lord. That he would call us to leave everything behind for him. To live last all our days. That's incredibly hard. I get it. But I need you to know it's worth it. It's worth it to live last now so that you can be exalted to eternal life with Christ. We have an incredibly hard ask from God, but we have an incredibly generous master who has promised that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it's worth it. Hold on to the back end. It's worth it. So how do things work in the kingdom of God? It's not a dog-eat-dog world. And it's not a place where nice guys finish last. It's a place where the last shall be first. But the first will be last. And by God's generosity to us through Jesus, last place people like you and me can become first in the kingdom of God. Thanks be to Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we recognize this morning that we are naturally people who would love to give resumes to you and see you say, wow, you're a good person. Come, well done, my servant. Come into my kingdom. But Lord, we recognize that eternal life is by sheer grace. We are not worthy. So Father, I'm pleading that you would give us the grace to leave all things, to leave behind the love of money or whatever it is, to love 
you and love our neighbor as ourself, as last place people. Please, God, give us that grace today so that we may not have to walk away from you in eternity to a place of eternal torment, regretting that we held on to our self-worth, our possessions, our whatever. Oh, God, let us live last now so that we might live first with your son forever. So give us the grace to see that it's worth it. Oh, is it worth it, Father? You are generous to your people And we can't even anticipate the reward of heaven now. It is far greater than all that we can imagine or think. So thanks be to you for this great kingdom that we get to inherit as your people. Help us, O Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.